Well, it has been good to uh, be here in Union Grove. Thank you very much. <coughs> All right. Now I've got my little iPad there. <coughs> Union Grove, Wisconsin has been uh, familiar to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, when I was in high school, uh, we used to come up to Union Grove and see the funny car competition. And some of you are saying, what are funny cars? Well, you asked somebody that has just responded to that. But there was an advertisement on a radio station in Chicago. Funny car competition at Great Lakes Dragaway, Union Grove, Wisconsin. I can still hear the ad. I can still hear the ad. And, uh, and in fact, the other night, I heard something going on, too, uh, out there from, uh, from our bedroom window over there. But uh, that was, uh, those bring back great memories of just uh, guys coming up here and, and watching that competition and spending some time together. And then uh, within a few months of my birth in 1954, I know some of you are shocked at my youthfulness, and I just told you the year that I was born. Within a few months of my birth, uh, my cousin Peter was born, and uh, the family uh, celebrated because there'd be two boy cousins so close together, and it became apparent in those uh, few first days of Peter's life that uh, there was just something that was not right. And uh, Peter is now in heaven, whole, but the shepherd's ministry was a tremendous blessing to our family. Uh, Peter was diagnosed with Down syndrome shortly after he was born. And you know, folks, back in the 1950s, they didn't know how quite to minister to people. And praise God for Shepherd's Ministry here in Union Grove. They were a tremendous asset and a blessing and an encouragement to my uncle and aunt and uh, really to our entire family. And so uh, uh, that's, those are the two things I've known about Union Grove. And now I know about the church. And it has been a blessing to be here, uh, to be able to, to rekindle the fellowship and friendship that we so enjoy with your pastor and his lovely wife, Valerie. I praise God for all that God is doing here in this church under their leadership. And uh, I know they love you and you love them and we will continue to pray for them and for you. And maybe someday we can come back, I don't know. But uh, we've enjoyed it, we've enjoyed it. I wanna remind you, those of you that haven't been here, that the PowerPoints that we have been sharing are available to be printed off by the office here and are available to you to take and to read through and study through and to remind yourself of. When, when your pastor called me almost a year ago and talked with me about his idea for this conference, I thought, how in the world am I going to fit all of this into two load this morning? But that, that first session yesterday, fine. The second session to the wives, that's normally two sessions. We did it in one. A and then to the men, that's usually two sessions. We did it in one. What I'm sharing with you this morning is normally three sessions. So hold on. No, so 
we're going to really give you sort of an overview and, and, uh, and an outline and, again, this PowerPoint. And there will be a lot on the PowerPoint this morning that there is no way you're going to be able to write it down in your notes. And I just want to encourage you to talk to your pastor afterwards and, and let him give you um, a copy of, uh, of especially the lists that we're going to share. We're going to share two lists with you this morning, 15 no's and 15 do's. I think that's probably the most important part of what we're going to say. But uh, as you know, and again, I remind you that that is being controlled by the Holy Spirit. That is being at peace with God and at peace with self. And then we talked about the confident wife. She's confident in who she is in Christ and what she has in Christ. And therefore, she doesn't have a problem living out her role. It's not her full identity. Your identity is who you are in Christ, what you have in Christ. This is the specific role God has placed you in. Same thing for a consecrated husband. This morning, we talk about home relationships. During the Sunday school time, we're going to talk about communication. Can you hear me now? Sometimes husband and wife are doing this. Uh, and that even happens to us. And there are times when I will say to, thank you, there are times when I will say to my wife, um, didn't you understand what I just said? And she'll look at me and she'll say, no, I don't. And then she'll say something to me and, and I'll look at her and, she say, and she'll say, did you hear me? Yeah, I heard you. And then she says this, no, you didn't hear me. And she's right, I didn't. And so we have to talk through that. So we're going to talk about that during Sunday school. And then tonight, the confession needed to move forward. I, I am sure that, you were, that there are people here who have been deeply hurt as a husband. And you carry deep scars. Wives, deeply hurt. Children hurt. Parents hurt. Uh, we sometimes react in the flesh instead of respond in the spirit. And we hurt. We hurt people. And sometimes when we hold on to those hurts and, and uh, we can become very embittered and angry and we will never move beyond the hurt. And so tonight we're going to conclude the conference by talking about the confession needed to move beyond past hurts and really into what God has for you. Again, we're in Ephesians chapter this morning, chapter 6. I want you to turn there. As we said yesterday, the book of Ephesians is divided into two parts. You have the indicatives in chapters 1 through 3, what God has done for us, the imperatives in chapters 4 through 6, what we are to do in response, not in the flesh, not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Second principle, the core of the truth, which is to mark our lives as Christ's followers, is the gospel. What Christ has done and is doing. We are set apart in love, we are cherished in love, and the bride will be consummated in love. Now let me say something to you this morning very clearly this conference. You will never have a calm home until you have a calm self. You'll never be at peace with your wife or at peace with your husband or at peace with your children or at peace with your parents until first you're at peace with your Creator God. That allows us to be at peace with God and then through the indwelling Holy Spirit at peace with self. 
And if you have not trusted Christ as your personal Savior, if you do not have a personal relationship to the eternal Creator God, listen, as your heavenly Father. And there is a distinction there. We are all God's creation. But John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 12 says, those who have the right, the privilege, the authority to call our Creator God, our Heavenly Father, are those who have placed our trusting faith in Jesus Christ. And if you've not trusted Christ as Savior, I want you to recommend, I want to recommend Him to you this morning. I, I truly do. That will allow you to be at peace with God. You say, well, there's so many different ways, though, and I'm, I'm just trying to make peace with God. There are not many different ways. Don't buy that lie. That is a lie of the world. There's basically only two thoughts. One is false. One is true. At the basis of every single world religion, and there are tens of thousands of world religions, but if you boil them all down to a common denominator, this is the singular common denominator. It is what I can do to make peace with a holy God. I know I'm less holy than God. I know I fail. I know I have sins. So if I just give enough money, if I just beat my prayers, if I just go to church enough, if I just add the list up all across the world, if I just do enough, I can achieve peace with a holy God. And when I die, hopefully, I'll go to be with Him. That is at the root of every world religion, what I can do. But the other thought, the second thought, which is the truth, is that you and I can't do anything because Jesus Christ did it all. That's why he says in John 14, 6, I am the only way, I am the only truth, I am the only life. You want to come into the presence of God the Father, then you come through me. You say, well, what gives him the right to say that? Three things. Jesus Christ, the God-man. No other religious teacher came as God. Jesus Christ, very God, come in the flesh. Truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. Therefore, because he was the God-man, he can say, I am the only truth. Secondly, he lived a sinless life. He never had a sinful thought, never had a sinful deed, never had a sinful attitude. He lived a sinless life. Therefore, because he lived a sinless life, he could die a substitutionary death. Substitutionary death means he died for you and me. The Bible says wages of sin is death. So if he had sinned, his death would have been because of his sin. But because he was sinless, when he died, his death could be substitutionary. He died for your sin and my sin. He took it all upon himself. Therefore, he can say, I am the only way. I've opened up the way into the presence of God through my substitutionary death. And then, folks, he rose victorious. His tomb is empty. This world is full of the graves of past religious leaders. The tomb of Christ is empty. If there was a residue of Christ, a bone or a piece of dust, Satan would have found it a long time ago. But you can't because he arose. And therefore, he can say, I am the only life. He is the way, the truth, the life, the God-man, substitutionary death, victorious resurrection. 
And so if you are not at peace with God, if you've not trusted Christ as Savior, and, and you're seeking peace in your marriage, or you're seeking peace in your home, but you're not at peace with self because you're not at peace with your Creator God, before you leave this building today, grab a hold of Pastor Rich. Say, Pastor, I want to know how I can be at peace with self. I want to know how I can know that I've trusted Christ as my Savior and that my sins are forgiven and that my Creator God has become my Heavenly Father. And if I were to die today, I'd close my eyes here and open them up in the presence of my Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have that assurance, see Pastor Rich, please, before you leave. That's where it all starts. That's where it all starts. And then once we're at peace with self and we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we can be at peace with our wives, at peace with our husbands, and we can have peace within the home. As we said yesterday in every session, because we said this section on home relationships does not begin in 5, verse 22. It begins in 5, verse 18. Be not controlled by strong drink. Do not be controlled in the flesh, but be controlled with the Holy Spirit. So the question every husband needs to ask is, today, this moment, this hour, am I going to be controlled by self, intoxicated with self, and react to my wife? Or am I going to be intoxicated and controlled with the Holy Spirit and respond to my wife? Every wife asks, am I going to be controlled, intoxicated with self and react when my husband does this and oh, how he irritates me? Or am I going to be controlled by the Holy Spirit and respond in the fruit of the Spirit? And this morning, teenagers, children, young people, you're here. Are you going to react to your parents? Oh, they make me so mad. <laughs> oh, I wish I had different parents. Well, every child has probably gone through that. Do you ever go up into your room and draw pictures of your mean parents and hide them somewhere in your bedroom because you're reacting to them? Well, yeah, you're being controlled by self. And parents, ha have you ever come to that place and said, ooh, these kids are going to drive me to the crazy house? Yeah, well, you're reacting to them instead of responding because you're controlled and intoxicated by the flesh rather than by the Spirit. The problem is we live in a world that has a problem called sin. <laughs> it's had a problem ever since original sin, ever since the fall. God created this world, God created this world to be a world of order. And therefore, as we said yesterday, he has raised up order for an orderly society. You have government and, and law enforcement that is there as an authority. In fact, Romans 13 says they're ministers for God. They're ministers for God. It's right there in Romans chapter 13 that gives the job description for governmental authorities and law enforcement authorities. Then you have the, the authority of the employer. That's what Paul gets to in here in chapter 6 of Ephesians, beginning in verse 5. Then you have the authority of the church. Then you have the authority of the home. A and within that home, you have the authority structure of father and mother and parents and children. It is so we can have an ordered society. God is a God of order. He is a God of design and He is a God of order. And so He's plugged this order into the universe. Now, the problem is we don't like to be told what to do. 
period. That began with the original sin. Don't eat of this tree. Who said so? They didn't like it. And so Adam and Eve gave in to the temptation of the adversary and ate of the tree. Original sin, creation fell, and we've had chaos ever since. But we still have within us the faith in Christ. So we don't like the authority over us, be it God or an earthly authority, to be told what to do. Who says I have to go 45 miles an hour? What happens if I want to go 100 miles an hour? Who are you to tell me to go 45 miles an hour? Who are you to tell me to punch in and punch out if we're mad at our employer because we don't want to be told what to do? Or a child, or a wife, or a husband and father. When God is putting his holy finger of conviction on them, what's the first thing many of us do? We argue with God. We say, yeah, but you don't understand what she did. You don't understand what they did. I think sometimes God must sit in heaven and say, wow, thanks for telling me that. I didn't know that. No, we, just, we argue because we have this sinful flesh that to be under authority, and yet we all are under authority. Now, the problem we have is that we have this unbalanced focus in our society. We live in a society that emphasizes rights over responsibilities. Do you ever think of that? Everybody wants to declare their rights, demand their rights. What about your responsibility as a citizen in this community? as a wife, as, chill, as a child, as a husband, as a father within the home. We have embraced socialization versus structured supervision. Self-affirmation versus humility. Overindulgence versus sacrifice. Emotionalism is trumping, is trumping grace and truth. Self-focus trumps inner character. And then we add to this problem that we have self-focused parents who fail to realize that there is a huge difference between having kids and raising kids. Huge difference. Well, you know, I birthed them and that's it. And now it's up to God to do the rest. No, it isn't. There's a huge difference between having kids and raising kids. I have said many times the greatest problem we have today is we have kids raising kids. So I say to you as a church even, that is so critical, especially in this society, to raise up within the local church mentors who can come alongside younger couples who are new believers in Christ who never had examples of what it meant to be godly parents and mentor them. We've got to break that cycle of kids who were raised by kids, just raising kids, who then will raise kids, and it's this cycle of kids raising kids. And the local church has got to come alongside young couples and say, we want to mentor you because we want to break that cycle. Ephesians chapter 6 shares with us some very clear principles. First, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, addresses the one under authority. He does that in each of these sections. Who did he address first? The wife, then the husband. Here he addresses the children, 
than the parents. You get to verse 5, he addresses the employees, and then he addresses the employers. Always addresses first the one who is under the authority. There's some very clear principles here. First of all, the obedient child. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Pretty simple, and it is. That word children in the Greek is a very general word. It speaks to any and all who are under parental control. Very general word. You're in, you're in the home. Your feet are under your parents' table. Your parents are providing for you. They're caring for you. You're in their home. This is addressed to you. Very general word. Secondly, it says children obey. It means to hear under, to place yourself under an authority and to hear them under that authority. To obey them, how? Next part of the verse, notice, in the Lord. There's the balance. Your ultimate authority, children, is the Lord. Just as we have there, the ultimate authority of the wife is not her husband. Her ultimate authority is the Lord. So a wife is to submit or support, as we said yesterday, you can use submit and support interchangeably. I really think they're synonyms. Supporting her husband in the task of raising children, living for the glory of God. But if he asks her to do something that is contrary to the Word of God, her response is no. I appeal to the highest authority who is my Lord. It's the same thing here. Children are to obey in the Lord. If your parents ask you to do something that is contrary to the Word of God. Now, hey kids, make sure it's contrary to the Word of God. All right? I can't find in the Word of God where it says, thou shalt not eat broccoli, or, you know, you don't have to go to bed at time. I mean, it really has to be something that is against the Word of God. Then you absolutely, you don't have a right to disobey. You have a responsibility to resist and to appeal to your highest authority, who is the Lord. It is never right to do wrong. It is never right to violate the Word of God. So our ultimate authority through this whole section is the Lord. And that is true for the wives. That's true for children. And then we have this next phrase, for this is right. Why is it right? Not because you feel that way. Not because your parents feel that way. Not because there was some case study that came to this decision. It's because this is right before the God who has created us. That's why. We're in an ordered, an ordered society created by an a ordered, designing God who has said this is right. Understand something. Blessings will follow obedience. Consequences will follow disobedience. Now, you may be sitting here as a child this morning, as a teenager, as a young person, and say, oh, my parents tell me that all the time. Let me share a little secret with you. My heavenly Father tells me that all the time too. When I decide to do my own thing, there are consequences. When I decide to follow the authority of my heavenly Father, 
and walk controlled by the Spirit, chapter 5, verse 18, which we said this all began, then there are the blessings of fellowship. Broken fellowship comes when I decide to disobey my authority or you decide to disobey your authority. I want to say something that I, I wrote out, and I want every child here to listen very carefully. And I, I, I wrote this out, and so I'm going to read it word for word because I don't want to miss a part of it. Your parents are God's representatives. They stand between you and God. They are answerable to God. They are responsible to God. You are not their possession. You are on loan to them from God. That's why they are answerable to God. That's why they are responsible to God for you. That is a high calling. It is a holy calling. And it's a scary calling. It scares the bejeebers out of parents more times than you think it does. There are times when you don't even realize it, would Julie, cry out to God because they're concerned for you and out of love they want to make sure that they have sensed the will and the mind of God as they raise you because they know that one day they are going to give an account to God. That is a high, a holy, and a scary calling. And it is one that you will never fully understand or appreciate until you are in their shoes. And then you'll say, in fact, our daughter just said to my wife, and she now has two children, and one is her junior. And she just said to my wife, you know, thinking back, I can't believe some of the things I put you and dad through. My wife told me that, and I said, can we please get that in writing and sign it and date it? We have a son who takes after. And then our daughter, red-haired, Irish blood beating through her veins, is her father's girl in every way, shape, or form. And she scared me half to death many times because I knew what she was thinking. I knew what she was planning. She is her father's daughter and has my personality. And boy, could we trigger each other. And guess what? She's married with two kids, and we can still trigger each other. <laughs> That's just the way it is. And sometimes we react. But I'm going to tell you, it's a high calling, it's a holy calling, and it's a scary calling. Pray for your parents. Pray for your parents. Secondly, there is also an obligation here. You see, obedience has to do with action. Honor has to do with attitudes. And that's verse 2. Honor thy father and mother. That's, that's the attitude, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Now, I believe that many times we have misapplied that, that, that phrase there in, in verse 3. I, I really believe it's properly applied that your days may be full on this earth, that you may live full days, that you may have an abundant life as you respond to honoring and obeying your parents because they are there to make sure that you don't play in the middle of a four-lane highway and you don't do things that will endanger your life. 
that you're responding to them, that your days may be full. Attitude precedes actions. It always does. Now you say, yeah, but you don't, you don't know. My parents are not perfect. Yeah, I said that yesterday. None of us are perfect. But I want you to see something, kids. Turn to Luke chapter 2 if you have your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter 2. Because in Luke chapter 2, there is something that, uh, that, that we see that is so critical. Beginning in verse 41, this is speaking of Jesus and his parents. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast for Passover. And, and we all know the story. We don't have time to read all of these verses. But verse 42 has a key fact. 12 years old. Now, your pastor, because of all of his time that he spends not only preaching on prophecy, but interacting with Hebrew Jewish traditions and the Jewish scripture, would be able to tell you that 12 years of age was a very critical time. Up until 12 years of age, all of the children traveled with the women. And the, they went first, the men went behind to protect them, basically. But at the age, and then at the age of 13, Jewish males traveled with the fathers. But at the age of 12, Jewish males had the choice. They could travel last time with mom and the women and children, or they could travel for the first time with dad and the men. So here they go up to Jerusalem, and they're now traveling home. And as they're walking home, Mary's probably walking along thinking, what a boy. What a boy. He's traveling with Joseph and the men for the first time. Oh, he's growing up. And Joseph's back there traveling with the men thinking, what a boy. Last time he gets to travel with his mom. How special is that boy? And they get home and they've lost the Son of God. They look at each other and they say, where is Jesus? I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. No. See, they weren't perfect. They were humans. They had been entrusted by a sovereign God with raising this child called Jesus Christ, the very God-man, but they weren't perfect. They weren't perfect. Went back to Jerusalem and found him. He returned with them. Now notice, teens, verse 51. And Jesus went down with Joseph and Mary to Nazareth and was what? Subject unto them. Teens, Jesus created Joseph and Mary. John chapter 1 says nothing exists that he didn't create. He created them, and yet he submitted himself to them. Why? Because that was the will of a creator designing God who has created this society with order. He was subject unto them. His mother kept all of these things in his heart. Now watch this. And Jesus increased in wisdom. That means he increased intellectually. Yeah. He increased physically. It says in stature. Yeah. He grew. He increased in favor with God in his humanity. Yes. Because he had humbled himself to his humanity. He increased spiritually. And he, and he increased socially favor with man that's the pattern that your parents are endeavoring to follow they are not perfect pray for them but they realize that one day they are going to answer to god
They're endeavoring to raise you in a way where you are increasing intellectually, where you are growing physically, where you are growing spiritually, and where you are growing socially. So that when you get to that age, you can function in all four of these levels in an organized society. Now that brings us to verse 4, which is the directive to parents. Not only do you have an obedient and obligated child, but you also have obedient and obligated parents. Verse 4, back here in Ephesians 6. You have in verse 4, And ye fathers... Now, as you see in the first part of verse 4, that's how the old translations have it, but that is really not the best word there. If your translation says parents, you've got a better translation there. It really is the word in the Greek. It's a very general word that speaks to the general title of parents, and it's speaking of parents. And you parents provoke not your children to wrath but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What an incredible privilege. What an incredible responsibility. There's a negative here and there's a positive. Notice the negative. Provoke them not unto wrath. Literally, the word provoke means to enrage with frustration to enrage with frustration, to enrage with frustration. It speaks of passive parenting, hands off, do whatever they want. They get themselves in all sorts of jams and they're frustrated or abusive parenting. It's the extremes of dominance or neglect. Here's the key I want you to catch that you see up here. Your child's will is the strongest part of their being. Your child's will needs redirection. Your child's will needs to be remodeled into the will of God, which is that he will be indwelt and walk controlled by the Holy Spirit, 518. That's where it all begins. The Holy Spirit needs to break your child's will and remold your child's will in partnership with you. Remember that. But look at this. Your child's spirit is the most fragile part of their being. And that needs to be protected and nourished, not destroyed, not abused. The spirit needs to be protected. The will needs to be redirected and remolded. When we uncontrolled by the Holy Spirit, 518, session number one, yesterday morning. When we, instead of responding in the Spirit, react in the flesh and, 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 and enrage our child to frustration and provoke. And when we crush their spirit, you know what a child does? Listen, the child reacts to a crushing of their spirit by hardening their will. And they become more defiant. And we lose the battle. We need to protect their spirit while we are praying that in partnership with the Holy Spirit, we will break and remold their will. Those are two completely different things. Let me give you an illustration. And this is where I really believe wives are so critical because it is wives who are spending a voluminous amount of time with their kids. 
yesterday we got a picture from our grandson who's uh, eight, dear, eight years old, played in his first Little League game yesterday. They won 20 to three. Yay! So he sends us Grammy and, uh, Grammy and Grandpa this picture. I remember back when my son was about 10 years old and uh, he played in his first Little League game. First game, he got hit by a pitch. First up to bat. Every time he came up to bat after that, the pitcher would start winding up and pitch that ball, and John would jump back out of the batter's box. So, of course, he was called out every other time he came up to bat. After the game, we were, we were walking to the car, and, and I said, how's your leg? Well, he, he, he thought it was fine. It still hurt a little bit. I said, buddy, you can't be jumping out of the batter's box. You got to stay in there. He said, well, dad, it hurt. It hurt. I said, look, son, you just need to be a man. You just need to be a man. Shake it off and stand in there. He looked at me. He said, well, I guess I'm just not a man. And he walked to the car. My wife, we got home and got the kids to bed, and, and we usually almost every night had a time where we'd sit in the den and we would catch up on ministry events and family events and just sort of touch base before we went to bed. And we were sitting there and she said, I want to tell you something. She said, your son has my personality. Uh, your daughter is just like you, <laughs> defiant, <laughs> wild, my daughter would be up here watching the funny cars at uh, Great Lakes Dragway, not my son. He is sensitive. He is very compassionate. He has my personality. And if you treat him like that, you're going to crush his spirit. You know, I sat there and I thought about that. I said, you know what? She's right. She's right. I'm going to tell you to this day, the relationship that I enjoy with my son is directly attributable to that counsel my wife gave me. We still say every time we hang up, last thing we say to each other is, I love you. Hug each other. He calls me every day on his way home from work. Dad, just checking in with you. <laughs> How you doing? How mom, how's mom doing? Driving home from work. We have a very close relationship. If I had crushed his spirit, I would have absolutely pushed him away. He would have hardened his will against me. That is why husbands and wives, and we said this yesterday, you've got to be working together as a team. The core relationship in your home is not dad raising kids or mom raising kids, and then when you're empty nesters, you have nothing more to live for. It is dad and mom in a solid, firm relationship, partnership, partnership, supporting each other in the great task of raising your children for the glory of God. Do not crush that child's spirit. In partnership with the Holy Spirit, break and redefine their will, but do not crush their spirit. Now, how do we do that? Well, there, there's two guidelines. It says in, in verse 4, don't provoke them. I, I, Josh McDowell came up, I think, with the best definition years ago of what it means to provoke a child. It means to have rules without a reason or a relationship. I love that short, concise definition. Rules without a reason for the rule or a relationship with the child you're given the rule to. 
will provoke them, will frustrate them. And then the positive, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Word of God. Now let me give you 15 things that I have pulled from a variety of sources. These are not mine. Let me tell you where we're going in the next 20, 20 minutes, all right? We're going to give you the 15 no's. I'm just going to spin through it. You don't have to copy these down. Then we're going to talk about bringing them up. And then I'm going to give you the 15 positives, which are counterparts to the negatives. The 15 positives are mine. I got these 15 negatives from a variety of books and counseling resources and, and just sort of laid them down. They're not original with me, but then I developed 15 positives that counteract the negatives. Here's how we can provoke a child. And remember, we need to be guided and guarded through our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Number one, by showing favoritism. You want to see a couple of biblical illustrations? J Jacob and Joseph. Wow, that worked, bad. That, that worked great. Joseph was just loved by all of his brothers because of his father's favoritism, wasn't he? No, he wasn't. Or Isaac and Jacob. Don't play favorites with your kids. If you could only be like... Forget it. Forget it. <laughs> by the way, did you ever wonder why the Bible tells us that none of Jesus' earthly siblings believed on him as Messiah Christ until after the resurrection? The Bible tells us that in the Gospels. He, Mary had other children after Joseph and Mary got married. They had other children. He had earthly siblings. The Bible says they did not believe until after the resurrection. Well, can you imagine what it was like being raised in the home with a perfect child who never did anything wrong? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Showing favoritism, not good. Using love as a tool of punishment or reward. I'm not saying that our children are to be shown unconditional approval. There are times when I remember distinctly sitting with my daughter in our den and my wife and I saying to her, we do not approve. You're old enough that if you make this choice, that's your choice. We will love you but we do not approve. And I'm not talking about giving unmerited, unconditional approval. I'm talking about giving unconditional, unmerited love, just as the Father loves us, and Romans chapter 8 talks about. Neglect. Adonijah was the most worthless son of David. Read 1 Kings 1. David wasn't even present in his life. He had a non-existent father. Physically, spiritually, emotionally. First Kings 1 says, David never, ever said anything to Adonijah that displeased the boy. And he grew up to be totally worthless and ended up being killed for his worthlessness. Dads, those who do statistics tell us that the average time that a father interacts just with their children is 37.7 seconds a day. Take your kids out on dates, will you, once a week, one-on-one. -on -one. Let them order whatever they want off the menu. Three glasses of chocolate milk, chocolate brownies for breakfast, just... Take him out and talk to him. Talk to him or her and spend time with them, finding out what makes them tick.
tick. Now, don't do it all the time, obviously. <laughs> Moms average about seven hours a day, but here's the sad thing. The recent ministry that tracks this time, and by the way, they do it through microphones and cameras in homes that give the average is now plunging. Do you know why? Because of social media and cell phones. And it's taking moms away from totally focusing on their kids. Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, in every way of life, just as you go through life, interact with your kids and tell them of the goodness of God. We provoke through generalized discouragement. You always do that. No, they don't. They don't do it when they're sleeping. Number five, unbalanced pushing for achievement. We want them to accomplish the unfulfilled dreams of whose life? Our life. You will provoke them. You will enrage them to frustration. Number six, failure to protect their childhood or to allow for childishness. I can't tell you how many times my wife and I will look at old pictures of family vacations and say, they were so little. And we expected them to know so much. Yeah. Allow for their childishness. Protect their childhood. Inconsistent or non-existent discipline. The problem with Eli and his sons was that he knew, he knew they were in sin and he never disciplined them. He never dealt with it. Now distinguish between irresponsible, irresponsibility and defiance. Deal with both, but obviously deal with irresponsibility less than dealing with defiance. Defiance we deal with directly and strongly. Number eight, cruel words and or physical cruelty. The other day I was in the store and I heard the most profane stream of profanities and derogatory terms. And I was standing in the aisle and I thought, there are two people having an argument on the other side. But what I was hearing was only one-sided. And I came around the corner and here was a mother. And here was a child so small that it was still sitting in that kid's seat in the shopping cart. And that child had reached out and touched something and the profanities and the derogatory terms that she was saying to that child literally broke my heart. I wanted to go up to that mom and say, if you really feel that way, I know some childless couples that would, be loved, that would love to take in that child and adopt it as their own. If you really believe that's what that child is. Cruel words, physical cruelty, we, we crush them, we frustrate them. Overprotectionism. Overprotectionism. Wow. We will frustrate them. We'll provoke them. A litter philosophy. I remind you, dogs have litter. We don't. Even in multiple births, every child has a different personality. Or a failure to sacrifice. Failure to sacrifice. You know, husbands sacrifice for wives. Parents sacrifice for children. Just like God sacrificed for us. That's the chain of authority. Everything down through the chain of authority sacrifices. Failure to keep your word. Make a promise and then ignore it. Failure to teach proper values. Failure to teach them to love God above all and how to maintain fellowship with Him. We used to have something in, in our home where I would say, how much do you love Daddy? And the proper answer was, not as much as I love God. <laughs> that was the proper answer. 
And then it was, all right, next to God, how much do you love Daddy? This much, Daddy. But the first answer was, not as much as I love God. Not as much as I love Jesus. Fairy to teach them him. Or fairy to teach them social responsibility. Interact with them about what's going on in the world so that you can raise them to be socially responsible. Now, that's the negative. Now, here's the positive. Bring them up. See that? Don't break them down. Bring them up. I had a father some years ago in my early pastorate that made a statement to me, and he said, Pastor, I've just always thought that raising kids is like breaking horses. And I went, huh? I I, I was stunned speechless. No, it's not. You don't break them down, provoke them, enrage them with frustration. You bring them up. What does that look like? You train them. You raise them. And then you begin to give them a little more power, a little more rope. And by the way, don't wait until their wedding day. When they begin to get into their teen years, give them more and more rope. Give them more and more responsibilities. Here's why. Listen, parents, this is so critical. If you give them rope and they hang themselves... You want them in your home so you can cut the rope and talk them through their mistake. You don't want to wait until they're out of the home and then they have all of this authority and power and they don't know what to do and they're out there hanging themselves because they've never had this much rope. Start giving them privileges and power and empowerment when they're still in your home so when they blow it and they will blow it you're there to pick them up and to help them think it through empower them and then and pray for them we're now we're now at the stage that when we leave one of our uh, children's home and we have five grandkids and we're driving home and Sue will say to me or I'll say to her, what do you think about da-da-da-da-da-da-da? The next response, the immediate response is, yeah, but all we can do is pray for them now. <laughs> we're right. You can't say anything. You just got to pray for them. You empower them. You encourage them. You cheer them on and they go. And this is found in these two words, nurture. That first word, nurture. That word nurture is the word chastening. Now that doesn't just mean negative. Sometimes we think chastening is discipline. Well, it is, but it's not negative. It's not just physical, corporal discipline or grounding them or times out. It's not negative. It's also positive. It's the very same thing our Heavenly Father does to us. Every day, every moment of the day, He is chastening us. He is forming us into the image of Christ. Chastening, nurturing is a process. Nurturing has to do with training, just as our Heavenly Father trains us through words and through the indwelling Holy Spirit. It involves both the negative and the positive, building discipline into our kids' lives. Therefore, clearly define boundaries that you expect of your kids. And as they age, those boundaries are going to change. 
And depending on their personality, boundaries are going to change. I can't tell you how many times our daughter said, when John was this age, you let him do this. Why can't I do it? I'd say, because I know you. You're my daughter. You have my personality. My wife would just very gently say, because you're not John. We would get the eye roll. She'd do that so well. Roll her eyes. And I would say, look to God. He agrees with me. And then she'd go off to the bedroom. Then she'd come down a few minutes later and she was fine. But you're going to have that. Why did that one have these boundaries and this one didn't? Because you know each one individually. So define boundaries. Be biblical with the boundaries. Be balanced with them. Recognize that it is very true that what one generation allows in moderation the next generation will excuse in excess. Distinguish between defiance and forgetfulness. I really mean that. You remembered that. Don't you lie to me. No, no, Mom. I, I, I really did forget. But in completely different ways of its defiance or forgetfulness. When defied or disobeyed, respond decisively. Respond decisively but respond controlled by the Spirit. Controlled by the Spirit. And set your action line early enough. And here's what I mean by the action line. The action line in a child's mind is when mom and dad really mean it. So if they are used to you telling them something 10 times, I want you to clean your room. Okay, I got nine more times. Number two, I want you, didn't I tell you to go clean your room? Yes, uh-huh. They say, I got eight more times. Then they wait until number 10. Go clean your room! Ah, okay, now they mean business. Well, what has happened is all of those 10 times, we're building up our anger. And then we explode like a volcano. Set the action time while you're still in control and can respond in the spirit. You go clean your room. Did you hear what I said? Yes, you told me to go clean my room. Okay. And if it is not clean by 30 minutes or an hour, depending on what a mess it is, there's going to be consequences. And then stick to those consequences. You've got to respond decisively. But make sure you're in the spirit when you do that. One time when we were pastoring in Philadelphia, I was sitting in a chair, and I was exhausted. I was tired, and John was sitting there irritating his sister. And I said, John, if you do that again, I'm going to hit you with my shoe. <laughs> and he did it. Now what do you do, Rich? <laughs> so I took off my shoe, <laughs> and I patted him on the behind the great place that God has prepared. No, I did not spank him. I did not hit him. I patted him. Just about that light. I knew I, I had to follow through. We went off for supper. He was fine and cried nothing. He's still irritating his sister. The next Sunday, I'm preaching, and I'm greeting the people after church, and his Sunday school teacher comes up to me. Your son has the most vivid imagination. I said, really? Yes. We were talking today in Sunday school about how our parents love us and therefore they discipline us. And your son raised his hand and he said, my dad hits me with his shoe. <laughs> I said, yes, Mrs. Heller, 
He has a vivid imagination. And off she went. (laughs) So be careful what you say, but respond decisively. Then after you've enforced that discipline, reinforce the original teaching. Yes. Now, what did I tell you to do? All right. This is why you just got disciplined. Avoid impossible demands. If you do that again, you're going to sit in a chair and not move a muscle for four hours. How are they going to breathe? That involves muscle movement. Be guided by your love, not anger, and not your embarrassment. We have been in people's homes and children have acted up because children will act up. And parents have just way overreacted. I can't believe you did that, and the pastor's here. Hey, relax. The issue is not your embarrassment. The issue is that child. So be guided by your love, not anger or embarrassment. Now that's nurture. Admonition all has to do with words. All has to do with words. You not only nurture them, but also the admonition of the Lord or the words of the Lord. Nuthesia or nutheto, three times here in the text, eight times in the book of Ephesians, it literally means putting words into the mind. There is a system of counseling that is called, anybody ever hear of it? Nuthetic counseling. Raise your hand. Yeah. It it is built around the admonishment of the words of the Lord, that everything grows out of the words of the Lord. Now, parents, the living word is sufficient for our salvation, and the written word is sufficient for our sanctification, for our growth through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are sufficient. We are sufficient because of God's grace, and because of God's Spirit within us, and because of God's Word to fulfill our responsibility as our children's admonisher, our children's counselor. We are equipped. We are sufficient to be our child's nuthetic counselor. We are. Not in ourself, but because of God's grace, because of the indwelling Spirit of God, session number one, and because of the words of God to fulfill our responsibilities. But remember, He is our guide, and it is the Holy Spirit who is the agent of change, changing us and changing them. Now here's the 15 positives to overcome the negatives. Confessions to make, I will treat them all uniquely and I will not compare. He isn't her. She isn't she. I'm going to get to learn each one of my children and their unique personalities, their fears, their boldness. I remember one supper time we were eating supper and the kids were talking about a bully at school. And my son said, I saw him coming down the aisle and he had his arms up and he was just knocking everybody in the back of their head. John said, I I ducked behind my locker. It's a mean kid. My daughter said, I told him, who do you think you are, buster? You don't own this hallway. (laughs) That's our kids. That's right. 
Still true today. <laughs> Still as unique as can be. But don't compare them. They're special vessels that God has given to us. Give them unconditional love. And I really mean that. I said the other day that there is nothing you can do to cause God to love you any more. Nothing you can do that could cause God to love you any less than what he loves you because he loves you as a child of himself unconditionally and fully. May that also be true of our kids. Now I quickly add again, that doesn't mean you approve everything. That is not unconditional approval. It's unconditional love. Number three, be involved physically, spiritually, and emotionally in their lives. One of the first things I did, and I, I've told young, young pastors this, our schedules are a little flexible, but don't use that to be lazy. One of the first things I did when my son came home with his ball game schedule was I marked all of his ball games on my calendar. Shared all of her plays with her, school plays that were coming up. <laughs> you can just imagine with her personality, she's great. I went to more plays than I ever thought I would go to in my life all the way up through high school. I'd put those on the calendar and I arranged my schedule. At sometimes there were emergencies and I couldn't do it. Now folks, there were times when I was studying at two o'clock in the morning because I had gone to a baseball game that afternoon. But I don't regret one of those times. I don't regret going to see the spirit of St. Louis and the sound of music and, and little orphan Annie and, and all the rest. I don't. What is this play all about? I'd say to my wife as we were driving there, but my daughter was in that. Be involved with them physically, spiritually, emotionally. Pray with them and for them. Number four, encourage them in all areas of life. I will encourage them in all areas of life. That counteracts the negative of number four exhort them to do their best this counteracts that negative five the negative five we're encouraging them to fulfill to to do our to do their best to fulfill our dreams that were unfulfilled no just encourage them to do their best i will laugh and enjoy their childishness while protecting their innocence i i i will tell you there there was a time when um I was trying to have devotions after supper on Sunday night. We're going to have devotions. And I started having devotions, and John said something, and Jory said something, and they started laughing, and they couldn't stop laughing. These sinful kids here, I'm trying to have devotions. And I looked at Mom, and Mom started laughing. So I just gave up. And, and I was I've miffed. I was. I was miffed. I was miffed. And they ran off to play or do their homework or something. And she looked at me and she said, Honey, I know you're miffed, but let me tell you something. There could be worse things in life than having all of us laugh at the supper table. And I said, Babe, you're right. You're right. Now she's here. She'll tell you. I don't always say to her, Babe, you're right. It, it takes me sometimes a little bit longer. <laughs> but just... Laugh with them. In, in, enjoy their childishness. Number seven, be consistent. Be consistent. And when I'm not, I'll admit it. On my retirement service, when I retired from the senior pastorate after 45 years, both of our kids spoke. And, what am I, and my son said, what I appreciated about my dad was that when he failed, he apologized even to me as his son or to his daughter. Have you ever done that? 
I'd never apologize. Did you fail? Ask their forgiveness. You failed. That's not going to diminish you in their eyes. Number eight, don't, I, I will not use my words or strength like a giant. That's that counteracts the cruel words. I will develop a relationship with them so I know how to hold or lengthen the rope. I will celebrate their unique individuality. I will give of myself for them. That counteracts negative number 11 where you're not sacrificing. I will endeavor to always keep my word realizing there are emergencies. We were in Philadelphia. My son used to love to go to Toys R Us and just walk the aisles and look. He never asked for anything. He just loved to look. And I had had an incredible week. And I came home and I said to John, we were eating supper, and I said, hey, bud, tonight we're going to Toys R Us. Really? Yeah. He was how old, baby? Eight years old, seven, eight years old, six years old, somewhere in there. And uh, I said, we're going to go to Toys R Us. We're just going to spend an hour Toys R Us. The phone rang. And it was someone who said that there was a woman who in our church was great with child and was in the hospital and having difficulties. And the visitation pastor had been up there and they wanted me to come. I came back, hung up the phone, I sat back down and Sue said, who was that? And I just shook my head. And I'm sitting there praying, oh, dear Lord, dear Lord, help me to somehow give me the wisdom here. Give me the wisdom. And I, I'm picking at my food. And God gave me the wisdom. And I said, John, on the way to Toys R Us, what do you think about going with Dad to the hospital and riding the elevator? <laughs> and he said, really? I said, yeah. And then I shared with my wife what it was. We prayed for this lady. We got in the car. We went to the hospital. We got on the elevator. He said, Dad, can I push every button? I said, yeah, sure. Go right ahead. He pushed every button. We got up to the floor. We got off. I said, buddy, you sit right here and don't move out of that chair. He was right there in the lounge by the nurse's station. And I went back and prayed and read scripture. I came out, picked him up. Dad, can I do it again? Yeah. We pushed every button going down the elevator and we went to Toys R Us. Now, it didn't always work that way. That's why I credit my wife greatly with being a pastor's wife who filled in for me an awful lot of times when vacations had to be cut short. But to the best of your ability, keep your word. Yes, there are emergencies. Remember that the ultimate issue is responsibility to God and His Word. 3 John 4 says, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are doing everything I told them to do. doesn't say that. I have no greater joy than to realize that my children are raising their children just exactly like I raised them. doesn't say that. It says, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in God's truth. Not doing it like I did it, but walking in God's truth. Number 14, I will teach by word and life. I will admit my failures. I will confess my failures to them. I will teach by word and life. And number 15, I will embrace. That's the wrong scripture. That was bumped down from the one above. That scripture ought to be Matthew 19, that number 15, Matthew 19. That's where Jesus just called the little children unto him and embraced them. The disciples said he doesn't have time for kids. And, and Jesus just called all little children unto him. Always have time for the kids. 
always have time for the kids. We had a young couple in our church. They were going through an incredibly difficult time. And I said to his father, who was also in our church, I said, have you just thrown your arms around him and hugged him and said, I love you? And this man sort of sat up and he said, Pastor, when I turned 18, my father gave me my last hug, said I was a man, and never hugged me again. And that boy's over 18. I haven't hugged him in years. I looked at him and I said, I still hug my son every time I see him. We end every conversation with, love you, love you, Dad, love you, bud. You do? Yeah. Hug him. Hold him. Now, not publicly and in an embarrassing way. There were times when I'd say to my daughter, she'd get mad at me in a store, and I'd say, come here and give Dad a hug. Dad, not here. <laughs> hug him. Tell him, I love you. Tell him. I'm proud of you. I had the funeral just a few months ago, and I know I'm over time with this. I'll be done. I had the funeral just a couple of months ago of one of the godliest persons I've ever met in my life. A missionary served his life in missions. And every time he would hear me speak and mention the unconditional love of God, he would say to me, I struggle with that. You know why? Because he never felt it from his earthly father. And so I close with this admonition to us men. Love your wives. Hug them, hold them, and kiss them in front of the kids. And when you kiss them, kiss them on the cheek or kiss them on the lips, but kiss them, just make a loud smacking noise. And let the kids say, oh, gross. <laughs> They're going to get the message, I love your mom. And then hold the kids and hug them and tell the kids, dad's proud of you. Dad loves you. Let them feel your love. Provoke not unto wrath. Raise them up in the nurture and the admonition of God in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Our example is our Heavenly Father. Father God, a flawed person, and through your perfect Holy Spirit, apply it to our hearts. In our Savior's precious, blessed, powerful name we pray. Amen.